Scientia est potentia. Knowledge is power. It's a line we've all heard before. In all likelihood, it was printed on a poster in your elementary school classroom, complete with a man climbing a mountain in a 90s windbreaker, perhaps thrusting one arm in the air in celebration of the knowledge he apparently acquired. It's a quote commonly attributed to Sir Francis Bacon, though we can't say for sure. But for much of human history, knowledge has also come with curses. In days of yore, books and documents were so highly valued because a great deal of toil and trouble went into their creation. Hour upon hour of monotonous, hand-cramping, eye-blinding writing went into the creation of books that we often take for granted. Even with the advent of the printing press, an invention that should have made book creation easy, there were still a lot of headaches. You had to set up the type, incise illustrations onto metal plates, manually pull sheets off a wooden press, you get the picture. And so, as the ever-ingenious humans we are, we tried our darndest to create methods of preventing book theft or unsolicited book borrowing. For example, medieval libraries chained books to their shelves like tiny leather-bound criminals. Other books had locking clasps that literally locked the thief out of their quest for knowledge. But even that didn't seem to be enough, and so we started an even darker practice. Book curses date back to ancient times. Think curses on clay tablets in ancient Egypt, but became particularly popular in medieval Europe. Generally speaking, Book curses appeared on the first or last page of a book and were designed to deter knowledge-seeking criminals from putting their no-good, dirty scoundrel hands on the texts. As a somewhat superstitious person, I won't read any of the curses out loud, just in case. But to give you a sense, the curses more or less threatened some combination of eternal damnation and earthly torments to anyone who might get greedy in the quest for knowledge. One book curse I came across even included a drawing of a hand reaching out for a book with an Excalibur-like sword piercing through the flesh. I suppose the message comes through loud and clear. Reader, beware. And some knowledge may actually literally be cursed. The Book of Sacred Magic, written by Abramelin the Mage in 15th century, is known for cursing all who read it. You see, he believed that everyone has their own special personal demon, kind of like an invisible friend, but not that friendly. The book is filled with instructions for taming these demons, but it seems that many readers also experience an unfortunate side effect. They report hauntings and other dark paranormal experiences after cracking open its pages. This is all a long-winded way of saying, in our quest for knowledge, we sometimes end up discovering more than we bargained for. While being a seeker of truth is a noble calling, one that I resonate with deeply and frankly couldn't change even if I wanted to, there are also shadows that can come with the acquisition of knowledge. And sometimes, 
even the most benign, commonplace forms of knowledge can leave us, well, cursed. Hi, I'm Jessica Carson, and welcome to Patina, a podcast that examines the surprising beauty of all that is dark, shadowy, and seemingly tarnished about the human experience. Let's play. The curse of knowledge is defined as the tendency to be biased by the knowledge we have acquired, making it difficult to explain or reason that knowledge from a more naive perspective. It's an intellectual contamination of sorts. Once we develop deep knowledge on a topic, we can lose our ability to reflect upon it simply and provide a clear and concise overview to others. So let's begin by identifying an area of knowledge that's cursed for you. If you're listening to this podcast, you're undoubtedly a seeker. To what degree, I don't know, but you clearly have some thirst for knowledge or you wouldn't be here listening to my contemplative meanderings. So you undoubtedly have a topic or area of expertise that you're really passionate about. Whether it's neuroscience or political science or ophidology, a word I recently discovered means the study of snakes. All seekers have something that gets our neurons all juicy and revved up, which is beautiful. Developing mastery, or at least deep fluency, over a subject is one of the most satisfying things we can do with our human minds. However, as we familiarize ourselves with topics and make ourselves more and more knowledgeable, it can be hard to let go of the biases and frameworks and factoids we've acquired to talk about the subject concretely. It's believed this is because, when we become experts on a topic, we organize that knowledge very differently in our brain than a novice would. This organization allows us, as the expert, to take huge leaps in thinking, making inferences and connecting patterns and finding associations that are invisible to others. But in our excitement over our newfound knowledge, we can forget to explain to others how we got there. Quite counterintuitively, a depth of knowledge may actually make it more difficult to answer simple entry-level questions. Think about a NASA physicist who's asked to teach an intro to physics class, encountering a young student who cannot wrap their mind around the fact that force equals mass times acceleration. This equation is so implicit, so ingrained, so very basic to the NASA physicist that they may not realize they need to define the meaning of force or use a concrete example to illustrate the difference between velocity and acceleration. It's believed there are a few mechanisms that underlie the curse of knowledge. One is inhibition, and the other is fluency misattribution. Inhibition means that people have difficulty inhibiting what they know to try to reason from a less informed perspective. In other words, we're just not able to shut off the faucet on our deep knowledge. Fluency misattribution, on the other hand, refers to the ease with which information comes to mind, 
leading us to incorrectly assume the knowledge will be just as fluent for others. And so it seems that we need more than knowledge to impart our hard-earned facts and figures into the minds of others. We also need something softer and deeper and harder to come by. Wisdom. As humans, our ability to assess what other people know and believe and use this knowledge to inform how and what and when we communicate to them is essential to our ability to thrive. Theory of mind refers to the ability to understand the desires, intentions, beliefs, and knowledge of others, and this skill appears in typically developing children between the ages of three and five years old. Theory of mind allows children around this age to understand that others may have different feelings or possess different knowledge than they do. For instance, if a lollipop is moved from one table to another while their friend isn't looking, theory of mind allows a child to understand that their uninformed friend will still expect the lollipop to be on the first table. This is an ability that is notably delayed or impaired in some developmental disorders like autism, making it more difficult for these individuals to understand that someone is operating under a false belief. But even the more neurotypical among us, and I use that term loosely because, well, who's really typical, can struggle to understand that others lack information that we are aware of. Once we know it, we're cursed by it. For instance, when you bring up your favorite band on a first date and they stare at you blindly, you may assume they've been living under a rock because, well, how can they not know who Gregory Allen Isakoff is? Or if you become aware of a juicy breaking news story which you then recount at happy hour, you may be appalled when others shrug and slow blink in non-recognition, not appreciating that you yourself hadn't acquired the news until a few hours prior. We react this way because we can't readily recreate their state of mind. We've forgotten what it was like not to have this knowledge. We struggle to go back to a place of ignorance or naivete or appreciate how someone else can be so terribly clueless, which is rather egocentric on our end. Have you ever visited a mechanic who just couldn't explain to you in non-robot terms what was wrong with your car? or had a human resource employee who, for the love of God, couldn't understand why you couldn't understand your open enrollment options, or an entrepreneur who couldn't stop sprinkling startup lingo and venture capital jargon into the cocktail conversation. Yeah, the curse of knowledge can be pretty rough. Now, in some of these instances, the expert is perhaps being intentionally deceptive, intellectually cocky, or relishes in your confusion. But for the most part, they suffer quite innocently from the curse of knowledge. They can't imagine what it would be like to be as naive as you, watching you stand there literally clueless in the face of an illuminated check engine light, not remembering that at some point they were that clueless too. And as you can imagine, the curse of knowledge can have really real consequences in the business world. 
In fact, economists first coined the term to explain why some people are not always shrewd in business dealings. Research has shown that better informed agents are unable to ignore the information they're aware of, even when it's in their best interest to do so, resulting in errors in bargaining, strategic behavior, and the like. This curse of knowledge in the workplace can also make it hard for your communication to stick. In other words, to have your ideas make sense and resonate in the minds of others, because you convey the information in a language that only you know. While our expertise may sound floofy and fancy, this puffed-up jargon is not the source of marketing genius or business savvy, and in fact, can be a recipe for disaster. But the curse of knowledge doesn't only apply to hard facts like math or science or economics, it can also apply to creativity. When we're in the midst of creative flow, we often struggle to see and understand how others will perceive or be able to make sense of our work. If you're anything like me, you've probably looked at some modern or abstract works of art and thought, I don't get it. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love art, but I can't understand what's interesting, appealing, or remotely valuable in a million dollar black dot on a white canvas. But from the artist's point of view, with their expert creative mentality, they see their work as full of meaning and metaphor and symbolism. If I read up on that piece, perhaps I would learn it's a metaphor for racism or a poetic statement on nihilism. But because the artist may fail to realize that not everyone's willing to look so contemplatively at their piece, they may assume that I'm a tasteless jerk, or I may assume that they're a pretentious snob. He was said to be the smartest man in history. No, I'm not referring to Albert Einstein, who had an estimated IQ of 160, nor am I referring to Leonardo da Vinci with an IQ of 180, and not even Isaac Newton with an IQ sitting around 190. Chances are, you haven't even heard of the smartest man in history because he was cursed. Cursed by knowledge, that is. Born in Boston in 1898, William James Sidis was a prodigy from the outset. By 18 months, he could read the New York Times. By eight, he spoke eight languages. And by nine, he was accepted into Harvard University. It's estimated that his IQ fell somewhere between 250 and 300, which would mean that at the upper end of that range, he had almost twice the IQ of Einstein. And given that 100 is considered the average IQ, this means Sidis had the intelligence of about three people floating within his being. While still a student in 1910, he lectured at the Harvard Mathematical Club on the topic of four-dimensional bodies, a mathematical extension of the concept of three-dimensional or 3D space, and it said that his lecture was completely incomprehensible. A few years later, he taught classes at Rice, where he was working towards his doctorate. 
After less than a year, William left his position saying, I never knew why they gave me the job in the first place. I'm not much of a teacher. I didn't leave. I was asked to go. Despite, or perhaps because of, his otherworldly intelligence, Sidis stayed out of the spotlight and stopped teaching. People just didn't get him. Because he wasn't successful in sharing his knowledge in a way that could be understood, much less harnessed by the masses, he died a penniless, isolated office clerk. Now, what's interesting is that Einstein, a man with many overlapping interests but a significantly lower IQ than Sidis, was able to much more effectively communicate his knowledge, putting his genius insights into simple, digestible examples that were sticky. For instance, I love how Einstein uses love to demonstrate the concept of relativity. In his words, quote, Put your hand on a hot stove for a minute, and it seems like an hour. Sit with a pretty girl for an hour, and it seems like a minute. That's relativity. Einstein famously said that if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. And I think that's something that all of us cursed knowledge seekers would do well to take to heart. After all, Unnecessary complexity can make a murky topic even darker. The curse of knowledge is something that haunts me deeply. As a ferocious consumer of knowledge and almost masochistic seeker of truth, I get really excited when I learn about something to the point that I can share it with others. But herein lies the curse. I can get so feverish talking about abstract concepts like archetypes and symbols and the unconscious that I forget most people have no clue what I am talking about. It's a folly I repeat again and again. In all my sparkliness around knowledge, I unintentionally abandon others. At best, this leads to confusion, but at worst, I can accidentally make people feel stupid. It's true that those of us, like myself, who suffer from the curse of knowledge can be off-putting at times. The dark side of the curse of knowledge often comes across as pretentious, stuffy, rude, overblown, self-interested, pompous, eccentric, egocentric, condescending, patronizing, and unnecessarily fancy-pantsy. It can feel like we're intentionally keeping others out of the conversation or that we're trying to put on airs to impress others with our masturbatory intellectual superiority. We can unintentionally make others feel dumb, confused, and perhaps even more terrifying, discourage them from learning in the first place. That would be my actual worst nightmare. And to anyone who I've ever had that effect on, I am so very sorry. But for those of you fellow cursed listeners, those of you who understand all too well the pitfalls of the curse of knowledge, I want to offer you the gold. You see, researchers believe the curse of knowledge is an unfortunate side effect of an otherwise highly adaptive learning system. All of us, and perhaps seekers to a pronounced degree, 
have brains that are wired to acquire information and integrate it into our existing knowledge base, updating old files and forming new ones. And when this process happens rapidly and intensely, as it does with a high horsepower mind, our perspective-taking abilities can take a bit of a hit. And so, while you might be a bit worse at imagining what it feels like to not know all the glorious, beautiful knowledge that you possess, it's the trade-off for keeping track of vast amounts of new information. For better or for worse, the curse of knowledge is such a robust and widespread phenomenon that it can't really be cured or avoided. In fact, research has shown that it persists even after people are aware of it and provided with incentives to avoid it. And so, it seems the best we cursed people can do is communicate knowledge with deep, unyielding empathy. In the words of Dostoevsky, it takes something more than intelligence to act intelligently. The Norse god Odin is perhaps the finest example of a character who was hauntingly cursed, and yet divinely blessed, in his quest for knowledge. Odin was a relentless seeker of knowledge, and unlike the fair-weather seekers among us, he was willing to sacrifice it all to obtain the truth. In depictions of him, you can see that he has only one eye, as he sacrificed the other for more wisdom. And Odin's martyr-like relationship with wisdom came to a head in his pursuit of the runes, the written letters that were used by the Norse and other Germanic peoples before they adopted the Latin alphabet. But there was a problem with the runes. They lived in a well and didn't reveal themselves to anyone unless they proved themselves worthy of the cursed yet sublime knowledge. And so, Odin took on this challenge. He hung himself on the great tree of Yggdrasil, piercing himself with a spear while staring down into the shadowy waters below, calling out for the runes to show themselves. He refused aid from the gods and remained at the brink of death, alive but suffering, for nine days and nine nights. It wasn't until the excruciating ninth night that his sacrifice for knowledge paid off. The runes finally showed themselves, accepting his sacrifice and revealing their secrets. Odin was initiated into the mystery of the runes, a body of knowledge that allowed him to become one of the most powerful beings in all the cosmos. And so, in a kind of dramatized, self-mythologizing way, the curse of knowledge that all seekers are burdened with is kind of like Odin's sacrifice. There are shadows that come with the quest for knowledge, but perhaps the only thing more cursed than knowledge is its opposite. Perhaps the curse of knowledge is always a superior specter to the curse of ignorance. In the words of William Shakespeare, Ignorance is the curse of God. Knowledge is the wing wherewith we fly to heaven. That's all for today's episode of Patina. 
Written and produced by me, Jessica Carson, with the help of my partner in crime, Jeffrey Sayers. With any luck, it's helped you to look into a shadowy aspect of your experience with a bit more hope and a lot more curiosity. If you like Patina, I think you'll really enjoy my other offerings. From courses to books to group and individual coaching and consulting, I warmly invite you as a seeker to dive deep with me into all that is beautiful about the shadows within yourself, your company, your relationships, and our society. So give me a follow or drop me a note on how we can play together. The shadows are a lot more friendly when we play.